we have some of our best episodes are the ones that we've planned the least and got <laughs> the drunkest. <laughs> What's up, everybody? So glad you're here. It's let's pod this, put the flow back in your ear. The hell was that? (laughs) I wish our listeners could see your faces right there. I was like, they don't even know this is coming. We've been chatting for 15 minutes and we did not discuss this. (laughs) Just just to throw you off a little bit. That was a, a throwback Coolio reference there, which is terrible. Anyway, hello everyone and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore and this is episode 129 of our fair podcast here. I'm joined, as I am every week, by two genuinely good people. Bailey Perkins, hello. Hello, Andy. Welcome to the show. And Scott Melson, hello, sir. What's up, dude? <laughs> What's up? Okay, no, I didn't say that. I <laughs> I didn't do that. You're in rare form today. I've been, uh, the you know, the pandemic's getting to me. Like, you can only work alone in your house for so many days before you get a little punchy. I mean, I, mean, I guess. I'm a little punchy. All right, so um, we, have, we have no set agenda for this episode, which we didn't last week either when it was just Bailey and I, and I think it went just fine. So buckle up, listeners. We're going to just wing it. Um, uh, let's start like we do most weeks with the, the COVID situation. We were just talking about this offline today. Only had 314 cases reported. Yeah. 300, I think it's 314. It was, it was a, it was a much, much lower number than we have become accustomed to. Well, it's been a weird week. A a thousand marks on per day. Yeah. Like, like just, uh, like five days ago. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. um, but then, so we also had like that day that had 1700 because the day before only had a couple of hundred. Right. So it's been this like really up and down. Um, they had some reporting issues and legitimately, I think there, you know, on Monday or Tuesday, there were a number of news stories about that. Right. Like they obviously reported the numbers and they talked about why they were off and they highlighted that the health department's system, their public health, an infectious diseases reporting system. It's called FIDO, P-H-I-D-D-O. And they use it for a ton of stuff. But it is a very antiquated system, right? So I, I used this system for 10 years um, because all of the HIV tests and all of the STD tests are all reported into the system. So we would use it all the time. Also, like, the HIV drug assistance program uses it. And it is, as we've heard from a number of state agencies, it is one of those antiquated systems that is built years ago on its own platform, doesn't doesn't talk well to other systems. Like, for example, it runs only in Internet Explorer and only in certain versions of Internet Explorer. It does not run in Chrome. It does not run in Safari or any other browser it is locked into Internet Explorer. Andy, um, I'm, I'm sensing a theme about antiquated systems and government. Yes, indeed. And in fact, uh, um, the chief operating officer of the state, John Budd, tweeted about this the other night. Um, that he said that, you know, 
state government is is um, rife with antiquated, like siloed systems that were built decades ago. And In, insert, I hate that word. Which antiquated? No. So, so that's one of Silo. my like. I, feel, I mean, like, I get what you're saying. I get what John Bud was saying, and like, it's true. But I feel like I feel like breaking down silos has become this like new like business jargon for like talking about doing something that we're not actually going to do anything. But it sounds super like actionable. Like we're breaking down these silos and we're coordinating and synergy and like backward revenue stream dynamics. And like now that the silos are broken down, everything's great, even though nothing's actually changed except we put more of the same people in charge. I, I get what you're saying when it comes to state agencies. When it comes to software that does not talk to other software, well, I mean, it's yeah. probably the most appropriate term. We could say walled off. There you go. It is a walled garden, perhaps, except for everything's dead in this garden and no one wants to go there. It's, <laughs> but we have heard, yes, Bailey, the exact same thing about the Oklahoma Employment Security Commission, right? Like their system, and I have seen a screenshot of their system. It looks like it runs in DOS. Like it, and if you don't know what DOS is, well, then you're not of my generation. And um, it is a like command language that is like the basis from which Windows is built, right? Like it is the, it is basically the one step above code. Like very basically, um, it is a, a terminal language um, that people don't use, right? Like it's a. You have to like tab and hit F9 and do things like that. There's no mouse involved uh, in using it. I guess that's it's not a graphic user interface. And Andy, it's cool if you've been working in state government for 25 years using these softwares. But when these folks retire and you have other people who now have to learn these antiquated systems, that adds another level of complexity to adjusting to old times. Yeah, I mean, there there are people using these these software packages that were not born when they were created, right? And so, for I mean, legitimately, the iPhone came out in two thousand seven and and revolutionized technology, right? It is twenty twenty. It's thirteen years old now, right? Like, and I most people think if you can't do it on your phone, then you just probably shouldn't be doing it, right? And there I mean, are and documents on my phone. Yes, I did it today, right? I moved money from one IRA to another with my phone today. Um, I, I bank on my phone. I, you know, social we media. We can, can chat with each other. Each I, other. You, can, you can video call someone in another country instantaneously with your phone, but we cannot process unemployment claims with your phone. Do either of you, I did, this is not rhetorical because I don't know the answer. Do either of you happen to know offhand um, how much R&D capital went into the development of the iPhone and other smartphones? No, not off the top of my head. Okay, follow up. Um, did <laughs> a, um, a lot. <laughs> did, um, did, did Chief Operating Officer Bud or any of the other folks that have been lamenting about our broken down, uh, antiquated, and incredibly unuser friendly technology talk about why they think we might still be using DOS based systems to communicate across the state and run things like uh, the OESC and COVID data. And I mean, has any, uh, did they posit what might be the, what might be the underlying issue there? Um, well, so not, not directly. Um, okay. Fo follow up. 
do you think that they think it might be related to um, profound, prolonged, and systemic underinvestment so that we could cut taxes for people? Uh, at least the first half of that sentence, yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm scrolling. <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm scrolling through my Twitter here. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying that only because, like, all this is happening, like, in the social media space, and it's 100% true, right? But to me, like, everybody, and I want to be, I want to be real clear. And it's a fixable well, problem, right? right? Like, a lot of journalists are talking about this, and I want to say I am not including the journalists in this. I'm including, like, public officials, people that are running state agencies, people that are like, what is going on? I cannot believe that, like, we're, but, and I'm, and it's like, well, why is this surprising to anyone, right? Like, did you vote for the representatives and senators and governors that have been cutting taxes continuously for the last 25 years? Because I bet most, I, bet, I mean, we know Governor Stitt didn't because he hasn't voted in 20 years, but like um, other other people that are confused by this, right? Like, I, I just, like the unspoken half of this is it's people are talking about this like it's some mystery and we're just like shocked. And those of us that follow this, right? Like, Andy, you and I have talked about this for the last three years. Bailey, you've been working in state and local government and at the federal level for like most of your professional career, right? Like, like this is not shocking to any of us. And it's like, welcome to the party. And the unspoken half of this sentence is because we haven't spent the money, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, I, I, I mean, that's way on me. That's way on me. I would say you're not wrong. Um, so I, I found the tweets. This is from two days ago. So that would have been Wednesday. Um, Dylan Richards at KOCO said it should not be lost on anyone that Oklahoma's two state agencies most stressed by the pandemic, OESC and OSDH, so the Employment Securities Commission and the Health Department, have had dramatic technology issues caused by using antiquated computer systems. And so uh, John Budd replied and said, this is spot on. State government is rife with siloed on-premises customized apps written in obsolete languages. Uh, CARES dollars, so the federal funding, will be used to address OSDH's FIDO system, the PPE inventory system, and the OESC mainframe, but there are years of other needed upgrade projects across agencies. And so I... um, was feeling a little punchy that night as well. And I said, sounds like we need to make a list and get on it. Like hashtag IT strike force. Uh, and, and Lieutenant Governor Pinnell said, we got a list. We're working on it. Um, which I'm sure they do. I mean, and, and just from the little that I've seen of John Budd on Twitter, um, when he does tweet, which is not super frequently, he's like a no nonsense guy. Like he, I think my impression from my point of view or my observation is that he like, sees that there are problems and wants to fix them and it's has probably realized that there are a lot of barriers to fixing that right like it's not like it's not like the state just has a an account where they're like here's a billion dollars go fix the problems right like we have to beg borrow and steal for every penny that we use and at the end of the day in almost every budget negotiation that money comes down to do we want to give it to our employees as a as a as pay or a pay raise when that happens which is once a decade or do we want to spend it on computer systems and i and it seems like this is what happens after decades of of not spending it on infrastructure upgrades 
Andy, I think that's a great point because I want to bring what both of you are saying together because they, they go in tandem. That this legislative session in 2021 is going to be especially hard. I believe it was Carmen Foreman from the Oklahoman who tweeted about brace yourself for the 2021 session just on the onlooks of having to figure out how we're going to fund medic expansion, looking um, into um, budget shortfalls, dealing with COVID response. Um, and there's just a slew of other issues that we're going to be dealing with going into the 2021 session. And so added on top of that list is uh, needing to equip agencies with adequate IT support and software and things that they're needing to be able to function in the 21st century and to truly be efficient in the way that our lawmakers often tout about wanting government function. Um, however, it didn't have to be this way and be this difficult to Scott's point if those investments would have been made in the long term, because that's the reason you make investments in people and in systems to ensure that when moments like this pandemic happen, because we know that life happens, uh, that our agencies are equipped and ready to meet the demand and meet the need. And so it'll be interesting to see what this incoming legislative session will look like with this laundry list of needs occurring. Yeah, Bill, I think that's, yeah, I mean, you're, yes, I, I, I agree a hundred percent, you know, and I, you know, I'm probably, you know, people who listen to the podcast are going to be like, Melson's full of shit when he says this, like, I feel like we should try and be about solutions and not just about like, bitching about terrible decisions that have been made for 20 years like i and so i don't i don't i don't harp on that like as a way of like we should spend all our time talking about how we got here but i think one it's important to understand how we got here to avoid making the same mistakes in the future right number one number two it is also important to talk about how we got here because it wasn't inevitable it was a policy choice right there are other states in the country that have four and five billion dollar reserve funds that if they needed to tap it for a billion dollar infrastructure upgrade like that would be a hard decision i'm sure but they have the cash right they could fund their hundred million dollar portion of medicaid expansion for 10 years using 25 percent of their savings right because they chose right they chose to take money that they could get from things like oil and gas gross production taxes and put it in the bank and not use it to cut taxes right so like we are in the situation that we're in because we made poor policy to choices policy choices and we need to avoid those policy choices in the future the other thing though and i think that it, this is something that um you know is on the one hand i think sounds commendable but also can be a little bit frustrating is there's a tendency i think you know especially for folks you know and and i and i i have a lot of respect for john bud i think that he's done like a really he's really done a good job in his responsibilities and i think you know, I was critical of and have been critical of a lot of hires that Governor Stitt made when he came into office. But John Budd was someone that, like, from the get go, I think, I think we could, I think we could check the Let's Pod this ar archives and see that I felt like this was a pretty strong hire from the from the beginning, just based on his like the depth and breadth of his experience. But he also seems to me, and I, I don't know him, he seems to me like someone who wants to kind of like stay out of pol like he wants to stay out of the politics, right? He wants to be about like 
well, we just need to like find the solution and fix the problems. And it's like, well, guess what, chief? You work in government now, which means you can't separate fixing the problem from politics, right? Like those two, like those two things are, they are locked together. And so- Cause if, there's not one, cause we've talked about this in multiple podcasts. There's not a decision maker who says, I want this and then all the things are done instantly. Like you go through different right. bodies who have shared power and, um, um, what's the term where you're sharing accountability um i i know the word powers yeah 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 yeah. but like (laughs) but like you know like we can make all the lists that we want of like technology that needs to be upgraded and agencies that are using these outdated and custom built apps that are written on obsolete platforms that no one knows how to use but the 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 way you fix that is money but the way you get money is politics Right. Like you can't separate the politics from any of this. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it is tough. So John Budd, for listeners who don't know, he was previously at Sonic as like a executive vice president and like chief strategy person. Um, and and then before that was like at Boston Consulting Group, which is, I think, if not the largest, then certainly one of the most prestigious consulting groups in the country for like management consulting. And he was like a partner there for a long time. So the dude knows his stuff, right? Like he went to UPenn, went to Northwestern. Um, he he knows what's up. He has been involved with the Oklahoma Academy um, for the last three or four years, which is a bipartisan organization, nonprofit that like seeks to build consensus around problems. So like these are not things that are unfamiliar to him. Um, and... And it is, in in my mind, somewhat refreshing to see someone who, like, wants to make change and just doesn't have patience for the politics of it. Like, that's a that's the kind of person that, in many ways, like, speaks to my heart, right, and, and what I care about. Why, when you say doesn't have patience for the politics of it, why? Why is that something that you think is, like, why is that important to you? Why is that or, like, maybe, or maybe tell me, tell me what, like when you say that's the kind of person that you feel like, you feel like having someone who doesn't have patience for the politics. It, like, I think, I, I think I get what you're saying in terms of like, he's not there to jockey for position and power. He's there to try and like get stuff done. Right. Right. And, and yes, but to get stuff done in government. You have to wait through the politics. In poli- right. politics. Right. 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 But he is, yes. So it's the, it is the jockeying for position. Right. And, um, you know, and, and I say this as someone who is, is leader of an organization called people, not politicians. Right. That like it, it is, it is difficult to get stuff done when politics are involved because in our, and this is a whole separate episode that we should do. Right. But like in our current two party duopoly, where only two parties control like 95% or 98% of the government and you're it's either you're for us or you're against us anyone who is like but I don't care about who I'm for or against let's do the pragmatic thing right um every issue becomes an us versus them issue and that serves no purpose other than to slow down the process because it's it then becomes about winning rather than about fixing and if um, what you're in, trying to go ahead, Bailey. In in Oklahoma particularly, it's one party dominated. And sure. so within that one party domination, when you have anyone who 
steps off course or has a differing view than the majority, then you see those folks often punished with the consequence of losing a position or getting bumped down in their uh, power. And so there's even consequences to having bold leadership approaches that aren't in lockstep with what those in leadership want. Yeah, I think, I think that's 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 part of the to me that's part of the challenge, right? Is that like, like you have to do more than convince people. I mean, don't 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 hear me wrong. I'm not like, uh, I'm not like excited about this, right? Like I'm like, um, because like in in my world, for the most part, when it comes to like determining, you know, when you're trying to decide what like medicine you want to prescribe somebody or like what treatment you want to recommend, it's like, okay, do I have good evidence? To make this decision on and if you have good evidence to make the decision then like by and large that's the decision that you make right because that's what the that's what the evidence says that you should do right i think all the evidence in this case says that like we should be investing a billion dollars in technology upgrade to make uh, state government a function more effectively and efficiently but convincing people of the evidence for that isn't enough you have to take the you have to you have to recognize that like all these people have disparate interests and feel like how how do you make their interests align with this other thing? And like, that's really hard, right? Like how are you showing people that doing something that's that goes against their ideology is actually in their long-term best interest? Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, you're not wrong. The, and I, I, I would Thank wager you. that <laughs> I would wager that if we polled members of the legislature and we said, do you think we should invest more in the infrastructure of our state government to ensure that our software is not obsolete? We would get a strong majority that says yes. That part is easy. Like that consensus is easy. The hard part is about building consensus and coming to an agreement around where does that money come from, right? Particularly in a year where like legitimately revenue is down, things are not great and come... February, when sessions start, things are going to be worse, right? Like, there's a lot of talk on the uh, economic forums that here in about a week, right, when August rolls around, we very well may see a wave of evictions in this country and, and other decisions that come with, you know, the end or the first of the month decisions that are going to send not just ripples, but like waves through our economy, right? And as I've been... um because having a place to live is the foundation of someone's economic stability. Yeah. Yeah. I had a long conversation with my kids this week about uh, public transportation because we were driving down 23rd Street and uh, a bus turned um, at 23rd and Penn. And my daughter, who is six, said, you're riding a bus? What are you thinking, people? And I was like, what are you What are you talking about? And she said, it's a pandemic. And I said, were they wearing masks? And she said, yes, but they're on a bus and there's people there. And for one, I'm glad that my kids are aware of this kind of exposure for COVID reasons. But that opened the door for us to talk about who takes public transit. And I think this is a, a broad discussion across the country right now, right? Oklahoma City is not does not have a great public transit system. Um, and having a car is a luxury. It is, right? And um, In the streetcar didn't fix it? 
And um, I thought we have a three car now. We, is that still running? It is. I, it's it running. I heard it runs, but it runs slowly. Is what you, I heard. Yeah, you can go. Uh, you can go from. Uh, you can go from Bricktown to the peak and back. It don't. Well, well, it only goes one way though. So you from from the peak to Bricktown is like a two minute ride. It's a circle, but from yeah. Bricktown to the peak, it's a forty five minute ride because you have yeah. to go the whole the whole route. Um, yeah. So the. But anyway, it opened the door for the discussion about, you know, why people in Oklahoma may take public transit versus take their own cars and, you know, explaining people don't always have cars and poverty and all this stuff, um, which really was a, a great conversation as a parent, like with, with my children. And they were very engaged and I feel like I had a good parenting win there. Um, however, you know, our discussion from our private vehicle is a is it from a position of privilege and that is not the same for everyone who's driving around. And so to go connect this back to state government, um, they are excellent. Lawmakers are excellent about talking about one thing and doing another. Right. And so they could all agree. Yes, we should definitely, you know, invest more money in these things and then not do it. Right. I mean, we, that happens literally all the time. I mean, we've had so many conversations individually with lawmakers where behind the scenes of like, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely supportive of that. I, would, I think we should do that. But the will is rarely there for a collective body mm-hmm. to put themselves on the line when it's time to um, add something to the House or Senate calendar mm-hmm. to then take it for the vote to really do that hard work and build the will to get something done. So. It is, yeah. It's funny to me when people say like, I'm just going to vote my conscience or I'm just going to vote what my district wants. And, and those two things don't always align and they just pick whichever one seems convenient at the time. And, and they, they will vote their conscience. They will vote against their district on certain issues and then not on other issues. And it seems like if you're going to vote, if you're going to vote your conscience, why don't you do it all the time? Right. But or if you're sometimes, going to vote- Andy, they're not even voting on the hard things, right? Because those things don't get put on the floor calendar for the members to actually vote. That's so right. we'll have conversation about, you know, yeah, we got to do something about this issue. We have to do something about that issue. It's important, but it's never put on the floor for members to vote upon because of fear of you name it. <laughs> That's, that's right. That's a really good point, especially right now. And I, I think this is a good segue into uh, interim studies. But as we as we move in the slow march towards the next legislative session, there will be issues that we all care about and, and people will scream, why don't you fix this? And it's like, well, I didn't have a chance to vote on whatever the issue was. And that is a, a bigger issue than the individual member. That is a systemic issue with the legislature. And I think it is incumbent on all of us, right, the three of us, and certainly all of you listeners, to help your friends understand what the legislative process is and how bills come up for a vote or don't, because that determines everything, right? Like, we know plenty of good bills that go to the Rules Committee and are never heard from again. Rules Committee, where bills go to die. I mean, I... Or they move in strategy. That's right. Right. I if I have time this year, I want to track how many bills get assigned to rules and then are just never heard of. Right. Like because that happens all the time. Last year was an exception because of 
COVID situation. Uh, I mean, it still happened, but it was a lot more. Um, so let's talk about interim studies for a minute. Um, right before we started recording today, and today's Friday the 24th, the House released their list of approved interim studies. So there were 90-something that had been proposed or requested, and leadership granted approval to 72? Well, 74. 74 of mm -hmm. them. And I'm curious what the other 18 were. Um, and so they are, I've got a bunch of them pulled up here, and I will... I will drop a link to the interim studies in the show notes for this episode, listeners, in case you'd like to scroll along with us. Um, and, they, and then also, Andy, can I add to yeah. that five to ten minutes following that announcement, uh, Pro Tem Greg Treat announced that the Senate interim studies were also approved. And there were 64 submissions on the Senate side and 39 studies were approved. Oh, sweet. Do you have the link for those? I will find it and I will post it so we can oh, get in the I got in the that. Notes. Apparently I get the I get the Senate I'm on the Senate email list like for their press releases, but not the House. I should I should fix that. Okay, I got the link here. I will put the link for both the House and the Senate interim studies in the show notes. So listeners, if you want to read it, just scroll down and, and click that. There's some um, interesting as, ones. There are. I mean, everything from... And also, I love the titles, right? So some of them are like um, just private property, law enforcement reform, and then other ones... Administrative meat, rules process. Yeah. Meat inspector. <laughs> um, stolen valor. And then uh, there's longer ones that say, a bipartisan examination of state government's role and possible legislative action in regarding improving race relations in Oklahoma. Like okay, um, and it thankfully includes a person of color in that, <laughs> um, which is not always the case. Um, There's an elections and voting, which I'm excited got approved. That's Representative so, Virgin, right? Yes. Is that? Oh, okay. I missed that one. Um, I will check that out. Antifa from Representative Kevin West. That's and it uh, did not get approved. It didn't. Oh, it not did approved. Not. There it is. Said, said Antifa. I was like, that's got to be a West bill, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. Kevin, not Josh. Yeah, Kevin. Right, yeah. Uh, the the explanation just said, Antifa and our public and private high schools and colleges. So, okay, that did not get approved. Um, There's a restorative justice one by Representative Tammy West. That's going to be interesting. Interesting. Uh, Representative... Representative Kevin West also has one examining the responsibilities and powers of county commissioners, as well as one on CHIPA. Yes, I have the cheaper one pulled up. I don't. Did that one what's, what's he, what does he want to know about cheaper and the cheaper one? Exploring how cheaper works and are there any adjustments that may be beneficial? Ooh, I like this one. Balancing aces, behavior, and suspension by uh, Sherry Conley. I'm excited mm -hmm. about this. Now, Bailey, you have been involved in some interim studies in the mm -hmm. past. Can you tell us a little bit about how they work and and what the purpose is? Yes. So. The members who filed the interim study and were approved have the ability to run the agenda for that interim study. So they decide who the speakers are going to be, what information is presented for the record. And all of this information is taken in for public record and in hopes for the lawmaker 
to shape public policies that they plan on proposing during the incoming legislative session. So for this summer, the lawmakers who are proposing interim studies are wanting to do a deeper dive on issues that matter most to them, or it could be something that a constituent or an organization presented to that lawmaker. And if it's approved, then they'll work with those stakeholders to put together what should be presented to better understand that issue. And so that's usually the, the root of it. Uh, sometimes they can appear to be biased because they can be, because <laughs> it's not a, it's not always a objective, let's hear both sides of an issue. Sometimes it's, I wanna do a deeper dive on this issue that I care about from this lens. And so that member, and if it's a group interim study, so for example, the one on race relations, then those lawmakers will come together and decide collectively what that agenda should look like and who should testify on those interim studies. So that information's collected and then lawmakers will work through the fall to shape uh, legislation that they can propose during the 2021 legislature. Yeah, that's um, that's really helpful. I I haven't like so a couple of years ago there was an interim study about HIV education because there's a bill related to that, um, and I didn't have a chance to participate in the interim study, but a lot of my colleagues at the time did, and it was really. Um, really interesting to kind of see the process and you know a lot of these you can watch online yeah. so if you're interested in the subject matter you can you can watch it they're they're all live streamed from the various meeting rooms of the capitol um and andy and, this is another great time to do a pitch for our local news media mm -hmm. many of them cover the interim studies that happen and will provide great summaries so like uh, if you follow eCapital on Facebook, they'll provide short summaries in the beginning uh, to give you a, a quick synopsis of what happened. Uh, but always your your non-docs, your frontiers, um, your KOCOs, any local news stations, um, your NPR affiliate, because uh, they will likely follow uh, many of the interesting. They may not follow all of the interim studies that happened, but they'll definitely follow some of the ones that are, that are interesting. Yeah. Can I insert a plug here? Um, so people who've been listening to the show for a long time, um, uh, we used to have a local journalist who wrote for the journal record and did a fantastic job uh, covering the Capitol named Catherine Sweeney. She moved to Washington and took a job in Washington. No, she's, she's back. And she's I know, back but she's, she's back now. So she's back now and she's working for KGOU and she's covering uh, health. Um, and Catherine is a great journalist um, for a lot of reasons and, and, and does a really good job. But she... Um, one of the things that was so great about her Twitter feed, um, Tress does this too over at Nondoc, Trace does this at Nondoc. Um, they do an incredible job live tweeting proceedings. So like if there's a hearing or there's a debate, like a lot of people cover it, but they'll like give you like, cause they're freaking millennials. They'll give you like the play by play um, on their, on their, on their Twitter feeds of what's happening. Um, so if you want to know, if you want to be like super plugged into what's happening at the Capitol without being there, um, following as many local journalists as you can, but I would specifically say you should follow Catherine and Trace, um, 
because they do. I think they do about as good a job of that as as anybody around. They do a great job. I was. I, I think Dylan Richards. At uh, he does fantastic. He does fantastic as well. His COVID coverage has been fantastic. Or- Trevor Brown is fantastic as well. Yep. yep. We have you know people talk about like the media and that can mean a lot of things. And if you're talking about Fox and MSNBC, that's one thing. But like our local media really do a fantastic job. Yeah. I follow it- Abigail Ogle on Twitter, and it's crazy what she and Dylan and others retweet of what others are saying to her and it's really (laughs) awful things um but it's just another reminder that like our local media are the ones who are on the front lines getting to the heart of the matter and summarizing in in really objective ways what's going on and so find those local journalists that you enjoy and that you connect with to, to get that good information yes I 100% agree. It is. I've seen their tweets as well, and it is. It's exactly what you think it is. Just terrible content. So um, let's shift gears back to state level stuff. Um, earlier this week, no, wait, yesterday. What day is it? Today's Friday. Like a day or two ago. <laughs> yeah, um, it was announced. Welcome to day 265 of the COVID oh, no. pandemic, y'all. I was about this. In, do, do y'all realize impeachment was this year? Mm-hmm. It felt that like was in February. Like impeachment happened. Ago. Impeachment happened like a month before the Rona. Yeah, I I really have no concept of time anymore. Like it's in, it's insane. Also, this is like the dog days of summer, and and I just am over it. Like it's been so hot and humid for so long now that I've I've showered twice a day for the last week, and I just feel. Like I still, yes, I just feel sweaty all the time. Anyway, sweat aside, um, the governor's chief of staff, Michael Junk, um, announced, I think yesterday, that he was stepping down from his position at the end of the month. So a little over a week away. Um, He said that he has his next job lined up, but has not announced what that is yet. Um, I'm sure listeners have heard as many rumors as we have. and and so let's talk about the timing and if we think this is related to the current climate at the state capitol or is this just a a normal turnover in staffing for this position scott what do you think um i mean i'm suspicious but that's my baseline so (laughs) i knew you were gonna say that i mean like you know we've got it there's I mean, I don't know that there's ever like a great time for, you know, a governor or, you know, a senator or president or whoever to like lose their chief of staff. But, um, you know, we've got a spike in our coronavirus cases. The governor is getting a lot of pushback from the State Medical Association, from, you know, other physician, nursing, healthcare organizations. We're not sure about what's happening with school in the fall. There's a, I think there's, there is a ton, despite, uh, despite, um, I think some legitimate efforts at transparency, there is an incredible amount of opacity around like hospital capacity and like what that really looks like. And in the midst of all that to like lose your chief of staff. And by the way, Bailey, you pointed this out before we started the show with seven days notice, right? This isn't well, like, this isn't like I'm leaving in a month. Maybe he told the governor a month ago and he's just telling the public that's always possible. Right. But like, yeah, that's my guess because of in the news story, one of them that about it, it said, 
like that that uh, Michael Junk referenced what the governor had said about this transition previously, and so it it tells me that the governor already knew, and that's normal. Like just because we're the last ones to find out doesn't mean that it hasn't already been in the works for some time. Bullshit! And, he told us first. Well, sorry, you're not that special. Um, <laughs> well, one thing I, we have to keep in mind as well is that like there's a lot of people because there's we we talk about the parallels between. Um, the executive branch at the federal level and the executive branch at the state level. And there's been quite a few people to resign and transition from even the governor's um, key leadership position. So um, case, Dr. Casey Shrum resigned, mm-hmm. I think that was a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, again, talking about COVID time. <laughs> um, and so thinking about like within his, because he was elected in 2018. But within his couple of years, he's lost at least a handful of folks who were in key positions within his administration. So it, it's something to think about of, you know, why are our folks sleeping in this time? It is it is not uncommon for uh, a, a two-term governor to, or a single-term governor for that matter. It, it is not uncommon for a governor to have some turnover in who his staff is especially in these like key roles. Um, you know, I think, in a somebody said in, in a typical two-term governorship, they would have four or five chiefs of staff, right? Like, because it is a stressful job, especially in the middle of a global pandemic. And Michael Junk lives in Tulsa. So he has to drive to Oklahoma City, you know, three, four, five, six days a week away from his family. Um, that is stressful and gets old right and he's been he was he was the transition guy so from the november election into the 2019 um inauguration and then has been chief of staff from the inauguration until now so altogether, it's a year and a half um ish that he has been in this role and michael junk is no outsider to politics he worked for mayor bynum in tulsa um there's some rumors that he might go back to do that again. You know, we'll see. Um, and the, I think he he knows what he was getting into, um, and he knows what he is is having to deal with now. It is a it is a long road ahead for the state between now and the end of Stitt's term. And I think the quote that I saw was that Stitt said. Hey, we need someone with fresh legs, and so I think it was probably a combination of, of, of Michael Junk saying, "Dude, I'm tired, and like my family needs me, and this has been a great opportunity, but I need to find something else." And also, Stitt recognizing that he needs someone that is that is fully committed to being in this role. I mean, to your point, Andy, I think that's fair to say. It is exhausting. To lead, it's especially exhausting to lead during a worldwide pandemic, right? Um, that's really hitting uh, the United States in a difficult way, but also navigating the emerging politics that are developing within these ideas around the pandemic. And so I can't imagine how it feels to be, whether you're Republican, Democrat, all the above to, to lead in this time and has to be a, a, a difficult challenge for our already stressful position. So I think that's a, a fair point. Yeah. I mean, I think you're probably, 
I think you're probably right. I mean, it's really easy to like, you know, I mean, like stories of palace intrigue are always, you know, uh, they're interesting and they're fun to talk about. They're probably overhyped. Um, I'm probably guilty of that as much as anybody, maybe more than some, um, you know, it probably is something like that. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a really tough job. I mean, what's the average tenure for a chief of staff in the White House? Like, it's like less than eighteen months, right? I mean, yeah. You know, I think you know uh, the Obama White House. They were there for they were, they were there for eight years, and what did he have in eight years? Did he have four chiefs of staff? Something like that. The idea of right? having a Leo McGarry for eight years is, is I mean, it absurd. doesn't happen, right? I mean, you know, I mean, Reagan was in office for eight years and had at least three, if not four, chiefs of staff in his eight years, yeah. right? I mean, Jim Baker. Uh, who served as a who has served at various points as White House Chief of Staff, Treasury Secretary, and Secretary of State um, is you know one of the kind of most storied like operatives in Republican politics. Um, when uh, when uh, his when he was offered the Chief of Staff job, this is, I'm gonna, I'm going to mess the story up, but essentially, either when he was offered it or like there was someone else who was offered it in another administration and um, asked you know. Uh, Mr. Baker, if he should take the job, his wife said something like, "Only if you want a divorce or something." I mean, it was very much like this is this is like, in some ways, the worst job in the world. Like in terms of stress, anxiety, you know, that's the presidential level, but certainly there's there's room to think it'd be similar at the state level as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you and I have talked about this that um, of the two of us, Scott, you would be a much better chief of staff than I would be. Um, because I, I'm a consensus builder and I'm too nice about some things. <laughs> and I think it's got to be like, just freaking do it, man. <laughs> this is the decision. This is what we're going to do. Make That's it right. happen. That's right. Um, I think it'd be an awesome job. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it would be an awesome job. And I, if, if someone asked me to do it, I would obviously think long and hard about doing it. But it would have to be for the right person. Are you interested in being uh, Governor Stitt's new chief of staff? <laughs> that that offer is not on the table, so <laughs> I'm not real concerned about that. You don't know that. He, he, he got, you got a resume to submit. So he could call you tomorrow for your dream job. If he calls me tomorrow, then we'll talk about it. But that he, I don't think he knows I exist, so uh, <laughs> that's fine. Um, this is more federal, but it's interesting. Uh, one of the important bills that Congress works on is the, the funding for uh, our military and defense, uh, known as the NDAA. It sounds like they've come to an agreement on what's going to be in there. And it was interesting because there was a discussion about renaming our bases around the country because many of them are named after better leaders or people who were overtly racist. And our U.S. Senator in Oklahoma, Jim Inhofe, leads the United States Armed Services Committee on the Senate side. Like he's the top dog. And he said, no, nah, we're not going to do that. So <laughs> that part is out of the bill. Um, but there is, I guess, finalized is it of the NDAA out there? So is it out? Like, has he? Because so what I had read this morning was that they passed the bill, and the bill that passed the Senate still had the the renaming bases provision in it. The bill that passed the House has the renaming bases provision in it. And Senator Inhofe said, "No, that's going to come out," but he wouldn't say how it was going to come out. Right. 
like so has it been pulled or is he planning that he's going to get that out during a uh, conference or like what's my guess is that likely during conference that's going to get pulled so especially because it's moved so far in the process that they're going to want to get it over the finish line and if that's something that they know that uh president trump isn't going to be for and if jim inhoff says this is how it's going to be then we're likely to see whatever goes to President Trump's death will not have uh, that provision in it. That's so frustrating. It's just an interesting outlook on too the the power dynamics of leaders and and who leads committees. So. Yeah. Do you guys have any predictions for the next week? No, not one. I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> in a precedented time. <laughs> Yeah, You know, I I would say, you know, we have these certain things to look forward to. I know the interim studies are going to start getting scheduled soon. Um, But and then Congress is still in negotiation on what the next coronavirus relief bill is going to be, Uh, Uh, what the limits are going to be on the unemployment funding from the federal government. Uh, Will there be another round of stimulus payments? What's going to happen with uh, student loan payments? Because I'm personally enjoying not having to make those payments until September, but there sounds like there's conversation about extending that further. I know from a food security standpoint, there's a lot that we're asking for as far as like pushing for bolstering SNAP and increasing um, funding for the emergency food programs. And um, so we'll, we'll see. Well, let's end on this unusual note. And that note is that the New York Times today on page 17 has an article that really indicates that aliens might be real. In fact, it quotes former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid as saying that uh, he, he even notes the possibility of, quote, retrieved craft and the idea that the U.S. government may have an alien spaceship of some kind in its possession. Just when you think 2020 can't get any weirder, there's that. No one Sadly, knows. that was not information I was privy to when I worked on the Hill. When I worked on the issues, I was not privy to that. So. Bailey, don't, don't, don't fib to us, Bailey. We know, you, we know you've been to Area 51. You've seen it. <laughs> man, if I could go to one government facility, it would be Area 51. Sure. No, I man. For entertain Fort Oh, Knox? yeah, go see those the, bars of gold, yeah. The bullion depository, man. Whoopee! A bunch see, if that, of, see if that shit's even still there. So what if it is? It doesn't change anything. Aliens changes everything. <laughs> Maybe Can they you... took the bullion out of Fort Knox, and that's where they store the aliens now. Oh, well, that's the case. Plot So you know, you could get to Area Fifty One and be like, it's a bunch of old planes. They just throwing, they're just throwing everybody off the scent. <laughs> the scent of aliens, man. Uh, this is what the pandemic is doing to us. <laughs> we, we, we are legitimately now drifting into, I don't even know what territory this is. It's not conspiracy theory, is it? Is, are, is alien theories a conspiracy theory? I mean, a little bit, maybe. Only if you believe that they conspire to do something? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, this isn't <laughs> alien related, but I would like to make a buzz. Yeah. So if anyone wants to have a good time... Uh, Regional Food Bank and Community Food Bank have done a summer advocacy series since June, and we're wrapping it up next week. 
And next Thursday at four o'clock, we're doing a summer advocacy bingo with the different terms and things that we've talked about over the past couple of months. Oh, that's and so cool. there'll be some really fun prizes. So that's super don't cool. want to miss it. So rfbo.org slash bingo to register. And we'll get you your bingo. Slash bingo. I will put that into the show notes as well. I'm a man who loves a good bingo game. I It'll will, be fun. Uh, I'll check it out. All right. Step from four to five. From four to five. Excellent. All right. On that note, let's end this episode before it gets any weirder. Uh, <laughs> Bailey, thank you for being here. Of course. Scott, thank you, sir. See you, man. All right, listeners, thank you for being here as well. Uh, let's pod this is produced by Scott Bailey and me. And we are members of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. If you want to give us some feedback or ask questions or send us anything, um, please reach out. You can send us an email at podcast at Let's Fix This OK. You can also uh, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Let's Fix This OK. Scott is at SC Melson. Bailey is at Bailey M. Perkins. I am at Andy OKC. You can find all this information and more at our website, letsfixthisok.org. Sign up for our newsletter. um, Check the calendar. There's nothing on there right now, but someday, again, there will be in the future. And uh, we would love to have you join us. Um, I think it's probably safe to say that right now we are really planning and building for the election night show of 2020. Um, We don't know what it's going to look like yet. It will not be in person, which is a real shame, but we'll do something cool anyway. Um, tell your friends, please subscribe and rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Spotify or whatever app it is that you use to listen to podcasts. Uh, tell your tell your mom that she should listen to podcasts, and this is one of them that you should recommend to her, and probably some others that are also funny, so that she has a lighthearted moment in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, our theme music is called Rhino Funk by artists So Down. And decisions are made by those who show up. As we record this, we are less than 100 days from the general election. And just and less few... than a month away from the runoff. That's right. Um, the deadline to register to vote for the August runoff in Oklahoma is July 31st. So you have one week. We will share some reminders about that. And with that, listeners, be safe and have a good day. Mm-hmm.